Welcome to The Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. I'm Wesley Fenza. I'm here with Eniash Brodsky and David Spearman. Hello, this is Eniash. And this is David. Today we're going to be uh, going through a little bit of stuff from the last episode. If you heard that, we're going to circle back to some of that stuff. We're going to be covering uh, some new news stories. And we have a new segment today, which is Happy News. Um, we thought the last show may have been a little bit of a downer, so we've got some good news for you this time, so stick around for that. Uh, we're going to be starting with feedback, but we didn't get any feedback, so we're not going to do anything with that. But if you have feedback for us on this show or the last one, you can find us on the Bayesian Conspiracy Discord chat, or you can email us at themindkillerpodcast at gmail.com. So last episode, we had been talking about price gouging. Eniash, you had called it emergency pricing yeah as one should as one should <laughs> and i i wanted to i wanted to speak up for the liberals on that one um because i think i think their their arguments got kind of short shrift on that um and when it comes to price gouging you know i have i have very mixed feelings about it because on one hand you're right this emergency pricing does ensure uh, largely efficient uh, uh distribution of resources and when people have to pay more for something, the people that need it the most will pay the most, often, but not always. Um, and there are, when that happens, there are always people in need who just don't have as much money. Um, so often when prices rise on a product, they just go to the people with the most money, not necessarily the people that need them before. Now, I don't think that applies to things like hand sanitizer and masks, which are mostly needed by medical facilities and um, businesses that remained open. They usually have the money to pay for those things. Uh, but when it comes to things like water in an emergency or food or things like that, uh, price gouging, or as you call it, emergency pricing, becomes a little more uh, controversial or less cut and dried. That's true. There's, I mean, there's a lot to be said for... Uh, Wealth inequality, I think, is a sensitive touch subject. I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, a broke person who really needs water to give to her daughter is not going to be able to outbid uh, a millionaire who wants to shampoo their dog uh, in an emergency. And the, I mean, that is that is a problem with assuming that um, utility can be accurately captured with prices. And in situations like that, I kind of feel there needs to be other incentives brought to bear as well, but obviously that is not ideal either. It's, you know, when disasters happen in people's lives on the line, crappy things sometimes happen in crappy situations. Yeah, so I don't actually agree, which I'm sure will surprise nobody. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> if I had to pay $20 per bottle of water and... Uh, and that was my source of water that I had to use to bathe my dog. I think I'd be okay just not bathing my dog for a while. The millionaire would definitely be able to outbid the broke person for, like, drinking water. But if there's not enough drinking water for anyone, for everyone to be able to survive then you're going to have a bad time no matter what allocation system you use. And preserving the price mechanism means that you continue to uh, maintain the incentives to bring in more water. 
Uh, and in instances like a hurricane, that means getting the roads clear and uh, repairing infrastructure and otherwise just doing things that are really important to a speedy and effective recovery. So if someone is so poor that they're doomed before a disaster strikes, then the disaster won't do them any favors. But if they have enough money to get by, then the best thing for that person, I think, is still to uh, preserve the price mechanism, preserve those signals and those incentives. And if they don't have enough money for that, then preserve the price mechanism and give them money, whether that be through charity or uh, redistribution, if charity does not get those people as much money as we want them to have. Well, I basically agree with you. I think the price mechanism is very important, which is why I would say that your point stands for any sort of billionaire who is at all, uh, <laughs> I know Wes is going to hate this word, but who at all has a shred of morality where they care about someone uh, dying more than they care about their dog being properly shampooed. But we can imagine a uh, completely immoral billionaire who doesn't care how many people die as long as their dog is shampooed. And uh, since I think the price mechanism is actually pretty damn important for getting more water in, this would be one of those situations where, despite my long-held stance that violence is bad and we shouldn't use it, uh, violence would be appropriate in this matter to realign that billionaire's incentives. Yeah, but if the... So even if the billionaire is very, very selfish and they don't care at all about whether or not other people die of thirst, the best way to get them to not use the water to shampoo their dog or to bathe their dog is to let the price rise so that the billionaire looks at the price tag that it would car that they'd have to pay to bathe their dog and says, you know what, I think the dog will be okay for a couple of weeks until the pipes get repaired. Yeah, I don't I don't agree. I think that there's uh, a level of money of maybe $20 a bottle, maybe $50 a bottle, where broke people legitimately could not afford to keep drinking, and a billionaire will not even notice that money. A lot of billionaires don't know how much common everyday objects cost because it's not just anything that concerns them, nor could it concern them. Uh, they wouldn't notice the price of uh, water going to their dog. It jumped that much. I think if the price of water was $20 a bottle and a billionaire would spend or a millionaire would spend enough money just offhand to buy enough bottles of water to properly bathe a dog, they wouldn't be a millionaire for very long. Just I, like because that person is clearly terrible with money. I mean, but yeah, that that is that people is getting twenty thousand dollars on a single bottle of wine, you know. I mean, sure, but that is not the same as buying bu buying like fifteen, twenty bottles of water at twenty dollars a bottle when you could just let your dog go for a couple of weeks without a bath in the middle of an emergency, anyway. Um, well, I think at the point where and, we're speculating on the psychology of hypothetical billionaires, uh, we may yeah. have gotten a little off track. So... Uh, yeah, that was actually <laughs> what I was going to say. 
This is getting into deep into um deep into uh silly the season marginal utility of money uh and of income which is very controversial amongst economists and people on this podcast <laughs> yes but the economists are the important ones because they're the ones who like dedicate careers to studying this so all i'll say is that if you have a confident position one way or the other on that question you're probably not doing the best Bayesian assessment of the available evidence. All right. I get. I got a quick follow-up question to Wes. Um, based on what I had said, do you think that um, screwing with price mechanisms would be a better solution to the problem than threatening violence on uh, the people we don't want to be wasting water? No, I don't. Uh, no, I think the price mechanism is extremely important for... Uh, the reasons that both of you have said that mainly that it inspires people to create more of that resource and I will be I I do want to draw a distinction here because I think this has gotten a little bit blurred Uh, there's a difference between threatening people buying water at $20 a bottle to bathe their dog and uh, threatening people selling water at $20 a bottle because uh, threatening the person buying water to bait their dog, regardless of um, regardless of the prevailing price, is an implicit tax on that behavior. And I'm okay with that behavior being taxed because it is a stupid way to use water in a time of crisis. Threatening the person charging the emergency price is implicitly taxing the emergency price of water which is stupid and terrible, and people shouldn't do it. Leave it to David to say threats of violence are bad because they're like a tax. <laughs> I mean, they. I mean, if I wanted to model threats of violence, that's literally how I do it, and that's pretty non-controversial as economic practice. Just anything that's undesirable, you can pretty much model as a tax. All right. All right. Well, we're gonna stay with David. David, you had another topic from last week you wanted to revisit um, that you shared about the t- about the Joe Biden assault allegations. Uh, that was I think that was me that added that into oh. the document. Oh, okay. Uh, but I do have things I want to say to this, mainly me retracting any semblance of a statement to the effect that Tara Reid might not be telling the truth. Uh, I'm still not completely convinced she's telling the truth, but uh, Robbie Suave at Reason Magazine, whose judgment I trust on this and related issues, uh, came out with an excellent piece, which I imagine we'll link in the description, um, basically going over the uh, allegation, and uh, it is both more serious and more credible than I'd initially assumed. So I just want to make it clear that I have updated pretty hard in favor of this being true, which does make me slightly less bullish on Biden, though I still think he's clearly preferable to Trump if I had to pick between the two. All right. Eniash, uh, what was your comment? Uh, my comment, I had not read this thing uh, from reason yet. I look forward to reading it. I guess look forward is the wrong word. But uh, my comment was that Time's Up is a legal defense fund, which people have probably heard of already. 
they respond in the wake of the Me Too movement to uh, help prosecute um, sexual crimes allegations against people. Famously, I think they were uh, involved in the case against Harvey Weinstein. But, uh, interestingly, they refused to support uh, Tara Reid in her allegations against Joe Biden. So she does not have a way right now to pursue this uh, legally. Maybe if she gets uh, some more uh, funding some other way or pro bono uh, help. But uh, I was just, um, I don't know. This, this to me is, I guess, basically me peddling some outrage porn. So I kind of feel bad about that. But I do think it's incredibly hypocritical and somewhat outrageous that Time's Up decided that since their preferred presidential candidate is the one that is being accused they will no longer do the uh, believe women and uh, prosecute sex crimes allegations thing because it is not politically convenient for them. Yeah, I agree. And I, I looked into this story a little bit, and they their on-the-record excuse is that they are a 501c3 nonprofit, and they worried that funding an allegation against a candidate for federal office would jeopardize their nonprofit status, which I found to be an extremely weak excuse. I've heard that it's probably bullshit also because they already have a very clear and um, well-known modus operandi where they go after anyone who uh, comes comes forward with, well not go after, but help people come forward with sex crimes allegations so they could very credibly and easily claim that this is not a political attack, this is simply them doing what they always do. Um, but they just don't want to. Right. I don't think there would have been any danger of them being found to be electioneering. So I think their excuse is very hollow, and it shows uh, a bit of a guilty conscience. Yeah, that's that's all I had there, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about bringing that up because, like I said, I don't like to spread outrage just for the sake of it. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ. Uh, one last thing on this, uh, because the uh, hashtag Believe Women is getting thrown a lot, uh, thrown around a lot regarding this story, I would refer people to uh, Scott Alexander's blog post from 2017 against overgendering harassment, um, which uh, is basically arguing that there is enough. Uh, there are enough male victims and female perpetrators of harassment that we should, uh, that were basically not served at all by considering this an issue of male, uh, perpetrators and female victims. Uh, it's very good. Um, a lot of data, as is Scott Alexander's won't, and a lot of great rhetorical flourishes and I would recommend anyone who's interested in this give it a thorough reading. Yeah, I concur. It's an excellent article. Um, I've also previously made the point that um, sometimes women uh, are the ones accused of things, even though you don't hear that from believe women. And in that case, it would be like you're believing the perpetrator. So I much prefer the hashtag um, take all sexual crimes allegations seriously but that is much less pithy. That's not a very good hashtag at all. No, no, because you can take them seriously without implicitly and automatically believing one side or the other. Yeah. The pithy version would be, like, hashtag believe victims, but even that I don't love for obvious reasons uh, relating mostly to the word Kafkaesque. 
Yeah, I, I mean, the victim could be the person who has been accused of a crime they didn't commit. So that's why, like, take allegations seriously rather than believe victims. Yes. Because Johnny Depp was definitely the victim in Johnny Depp's situation. Hashtag Bayesian update. Yes. <laughs> I approve. All right. The other thing we wanted to talk about from last week was that I think, David, you had mentioned that you had heard news about Taiwan had been being suppressed by the WHO as a favor to China. And I did look into this. And I, I you appear to be correct. What's happening is that Taiwan is not a member of the WHO because membership is open only to members of the United Nations. And Taiwan has been blocked from entering the United Nations by China for political reasons. And the WHO, in an effort to, I suppose, placate China, refuses to recognize Taiwan as a separate country. So when they're reporting their stats on the coronavirus and what everyone's doing, they're rolling Taiwan stats together with China, even though Taiwan, uh, by all reports, is doing a great job and could, be, could have some information that's relevant to the rest of us. Yeah, so I am not super comfortable calling this a win for me because I didn't realize that this was just a continuation of the usual bullshit around Taiwan not being a member of the UN, um, which I, I thought it was, like, separate bullshit, but if it's just more of that same bullshit, then... Like, it's still pretty bad, but also that's been terrible for a long time before this crisis, so I'm not super comfortable saying just fuck the WHO, because it's apparently originating above their pay grade. Yeah, Taiwan seems to be making some allegations that there's some other animus toward them from the WHO, but I couldn't really find anything that suggested that was the case. I don't have a source in front of me, but I believe I also heard that the WHO was repeating China's line that uh, coronavirus is not human to human transmissible for a number of weeks after it was pretty obvious that it is, but China was still sticking with the not uh story. Well, maybe we can look into that for next episode. I'd also refer people to uh, uh, the Cato Institute's podcast, Power Problems. Um, it's a podcast from a libertarian perspective because Cato on foreign policy and they recently had an interview about China's hijacking um, institutions set up by the good neoliberal free trader uh, establishment in the post-war years uh, and to and the extent to which that's actually happening and the extent to which we should be concerned uh, the answers are basically kinda, um, and it's just, in general, an excellent podcast. And if you're listening to this podcast, you'd probably enjoy that one. I do think the WHO is kind of in a hard position because they they are a UN uh, subsidiary, right? Yes. And as such, they need to uh, work within what the UN is doing, and China is, you know, a rather powerful member state there that pulls a lot of weight. Well, when I think about this, I become very partial to David's libertarian arguments because you can see how, from the perspective of the WHO, they really can't afford to piss off China. China right. is, controls a lot of their funding and is has a lot of influence over how they're staffed, how they're funded, or even whether they exist. 
So from their perspective, you can see that they are motivated and incentivized to tow the company line on China. But then when you think about that from the world's perspective, why do we have this organization if their number one priority is not going to be public health? That's the whole point of the organization. And if that's not it, why are we funding them? Yeah. So I want to, um, since uh, if I remember right, a significant um, uh, a significant chunk of the sequences was dedicated to singing the praises of George Orwell. I do want to object real quick to that use of toe the line, uh, which was specifically an idiom that Orwell called out as being misused in um, politics in the English language but I had nothing else of substance to contribute beyond complaining about that, so continue. Wait, if you're going to complain about that, you got to tell us how it's misused. Uh, so people use towing the line to mean, like, cooperating with the official party line, but if you think about the actual metaphor, if there's a line and you're towing it, it means you're, like, pressing the limits of what you're allowed to do. So, yeah. Oh, I always conceived of it as you're towing the uh, ship of state behind you. But I guess not. Uh, I guess that kind of makes sense, but the other interpretation is a lot clearer, and I always see it spelled T-O-E, not T-O-W, uh, even when it's used in the sense that you used oh, it. Oh, I guess it is towing like your foot. Yeah, that's yeah. the entire point of politics in the English language, which you should read if you're listening to this podcast. Isn't that a reference to the party loyal stepping up to the line when they're called upon to represent? Not according to Orwell. I haven't independently verified his uh, etymology. But the, the okay. point of politics in the English language, basically, is that if you think about an idiom... Its usage should make sense. Like, you should have a picture in your mind of what's happened, what's being described by the idiom, and whether or not it makes sense for the meaning you're trying to convey. And towing the line is an example he gives of a place where meaning has been lost. There was a clear meaning of tow the line, and then uh, it became lost as people as the usage drift drifted and now it's just like this fossilized phrase that people have in their heads that they spit out whenever they want to evoke the image of someone cooperating with a party and they don't have an image in their head corresponding to that so if you do have an image in your head of towing the ship of state or whatever then that's fine from an orwellian perspective just make sure that you aren't actually like just regurgitating a cached thought, as Eliezer would put it. And also read politics in the English language. It's so good, you guys. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to move on to news stories this week. David, you had a story you wanted to share about how there are not enough false positives in our coronavirus testing. Yes. Uh, so this is basically going into a general rant uh, from my statistics nerd side um how to put it this way uh 
So the way that testing is happening in the United States would get a failing grade and derisive laughter if the experimental design was handed in to me in a first-year econometrics class. Uh, basically, what's happening is when people come into the hospital sick with a cough, we test them for coronavirus, which is a terrible terrible allocation of our limited testing resources because we should just at the point that people are in the hospital we should just be treating them we shouldn't bother with like figuring out exactly what's wrong with them we should just be treating them testing at this stage is best used for figuring out how widespread the um the uh infection is and this gets into what i was waffling about last fortnight about how we should be putting like our making our schedules based on things like infection rates not on dates um so if we want to find that out we need random sampling because anything else isn't giving us clear data and I can only assume that either the testing is being done by doctors who uh, didn't pay attention in their statistics classes because they didn't think they needed to, or it's being done by epidemiologists who are very bad at their jobs. And I'm pretty sure epidemiologists aren't very bad at their jobs. Uh, my grandfather was an epidemiologist, and I love him to death. And his stories about his work seem to be not bullshit. <laughs> so I can only assume that somewhere along the line, something has gone horribly wrong. And I do not like it. <laughs> so why do you say there's not enough false positives? So basically, if... So having a low rate... Uh, having a low rate... It's not there aren't enough false positives or so it sort of is there aren't enough false positives it's there's not enough um basically the the people who are getting tested are already pre-filtered they're filtered for coming into hospitals with a cough and once you're filtering at that level you're no longer uh basically getting uh, Bayesian evidence and the particular thing I shared was frankly a really bad headline um, and that is a bit of a pity but uh, basically the uh, what it should have been trying to convey and it did a bad job of was there aren't enough people who aren't sick getting tested and that's especially gotcha. true for coronavirus, which is uh, unusual in that it is contagious while asymptomatic. Um, there are people who have the coronavirus, who are spreading coronavirus, who are not manifesting symptoms. So especially if we want to track those people... And especially if we want to, like, actually get reliable pictures of what's going on, we need random testing, not testing of inpatients in hospitals. 
I, I agree. Yep, I, I had not considered that before, but yeah, for random sampling giving us a good idea of what the extent of the infections would be extremely useful. There'd probably be some logistical problem setting that up, but nothing that's insurmountable. Do you know, are people that are admitted for uh, corona symptoms, are they treated differently depending on whether the test comes back positive or negative? I have no idea. I, I would assume so, but... Um, but probably, even if there is a significant difference, probably the limited tests we have would be better off uh, randomly sampling so that we can have inputs to epidemiological models rather than in triage. Yeah, yeah I believe there are quarantine procedures being taken for people who test positive. But those could be put in place for anyone who displays the symptoms. Uh, with even if we don't test them. I mean, really, what we need right now is a lot more tests. Yes, that is certainly, as I was saying last week, I think the only way we ever get back to anything resembling normal before, you know, a cure or a vaccine is created is we just get massive, massive amount of tests. Uh, and I think I saw a suggestion this week that somebody calculated we would need about 22 million per day to get back to normal and really get get the infection rate below one per person uh, if we tested 22 million people a day we should be able to keep you know the the, the are not below one uh, but we're nowhere near that and there are a lot of reasons for that but mostly it's just that we're not doing everything we can, and we got a really late start on it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see in exactly what that person is trying to do with those 22 million tests a day. Because that's, like, enough to test everyone in America in, like, a month or so. Uh, less than a month. Um, and I think that was the idea. Yeah, so that, I, I think... Practically speaking, we could probably get away with a lot fewer than that because, like, we probably don't need to test all the children and the uh, people in prison and full-time students, etc. Um, they aren't really contributing that much to the economy, so, I, yeah. I, I did read up a bit on the... Um the hammer and the dance that you were talking about last week uh and i guess i finally got it through my head that the purpose of the hammer is to basically quarantine everyone in the nation until we get uh to the situation that taiwan is in and then after that implement uh, the taiwanese controls to keep the r or not low or uh at or below one uh so it made more sense to me once i read through that but also God, I don't know how how long the American public would accept uh, Taiwan level controls because they uh, they have people monitored through their phones basically at all times. If uh, you're found to be positive for Corona, they go back and check the app to see everyone that you interacted with in the past two weeks or so. Right. It's it's a level of privacy violation that maybe we need to get used to eventually. But. I don't think people are going to take that very lightly uh, here. Yeah, and I believe the Center for American Progress put out a plan 
that suggested a similar app for the United States. But I agree. I don't think people would download it. I don't think enough people would comply to make it all that useful. Um, and I'm not sure that they should. I would not download such an app, and I have signed up to be voluntarily infected with coronavirus if it would help. I have also signed up for that. I I don't know. Maybe I would download such an app um, if it meant preserving civilization. I would download the app, but I don't care about my own privacy. I mean, I, I go by my real name online, so... I don't care that much about my own privacy either. I just don't want to set that sort of precedent just damn the man yeah pretty much um you give him an inch and you'll never get it back yeah but um i i also don't think that's necessary i guess that's what they're doing in taiwan but that's not what they were doing in singapore or south korea i don't think their measures were mostly massive testing quarantining anyone who tested positive and doing aggressive contact tracing well the, well, the way they're doing the contact tracing is with something like that app. Is that right in South Korea and Singapore? Uh, I don't know necessarily that they're using an app, but like contact tracing implies a pretty serious curtailment of civil liberties, and that's not something that we should take lightly, even if uh, it would help with the uh, pandemic, because, you know it's possible that the world might end in some other way. Well, I think if it's just a question, if it's just a matter of asking people who they came into contact with, which is, I think, what they were doing in South Korea at least a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if they have an, an app or some electronic surveillance method since. I don't think that's very feasible unless you literally know everyone that you come in contact with. Like, before this pandemic thing happened, I like to go out and dance every now and then, and in that case, I'm in a club with, I don't know, one to two hundred other people, the vast majority of which I do not know who they are, and if you asked me, you know, who have you spent a lot of time in a room with when you've been, you know, breathing hard, I'd be like, uh, everyone who was at that club on that night, I don't know any of them, good luck. Well, my guess is you won't really be doing that for the next 12 months or so. God damn it. You know, I think that we may get back to uh, certainly the lockdown will be over before then, but I don't know if 200 person dance clubs will be operating. I mean, so that is the glib answer, but like, I went grocery shopping this morning. I probably came within six feet of about 100 people. Tracking them down would be a nightmare. I think that it's not, it's a very low risk just to walk past someone, especially if you both have masks on. I doubt you'd even have to bother tracking those people. Yeah. If I got yeah, sick today, but... I would just tell people, you know, I visited, uh, you know, I have my wife here, my daughter, and I visited my mother. Um, and she has seen my brother and one other person. And that would be the people to get tested. I would mention the grocery store just because maybe if a lot of people all mentioned that grocery store in the same day, the, uh, the, Authorities could be like, oh, there was probably a cashier there that's spreading something. Uh, I use self-checkout because I'm not a madman, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be, you know, you'd be able to alert people. It's like, if you were at this grocery store on this day, go get tested, something like that. But that's yeah. all predicated on us actually having tests, which we don't have. So it's yeah. kind of a moot point right now. 
All right, shall we move on to B? All right. Uh, the other – so this is an article I found that I just found very depressing. And this is – I guess this is kind of in the outrage porn uh, section. But it's a map of America showing anonymized cell phone data of who is who is staying home and who is traveling more than two miles. And it is just the South. It is – you know the heart of Trump country down there, the people who are downplaying the virus and not acting in accordance with the lockdown, and I feel like this is going to be bad. That doesn't surprise me at all. I think that when the clash of civilizations thing happens and people notice that uh, the South has a massively inflated death rate compared to the rest of the country, they might take some lessons from this. Uh, but on the other hand, um, is I don't know how dense the South is. Based on my stereotypes, it's all just, you know, one person t per 10 acres of farmland, but uh, or swampland, as the case may be. But I have no idea. It might not be that big a risk for them if they are, you know, widely dispersed anyway. Uh, I, I do, in fact, live in the South. Uh, I'm currently based out of Virginia. I grew up in South Carolina. I think that it's a little bit of, like, this being uh, urban coastal elite privilege and a little bit of this just being the South being atrociously governed. Um, it would be pretty hard to get cheap groceries within two miles of my home in the South, and I live in a... Uh, and I lived in a moderately large-ish college town. Um, so I do think that, like, for a lot of those people that are traveling more than two miles, it's quite possibly just because they need to in order to not die. Yeah, I've, he I've heard that excuse, and I don't buy it. So I do think it is partially that. I also do think that it's partially because these states are pretty much owned outright by the uh, hashtag Chinese conspiracy uh, QAnon Trump crowd, and they're probably fucking up real bad. Yeah, here's why I don't buy that excuse, because I'm looking at this map, and red are, the counties where people are traveling a lot are in red, and Alabama, Georgia... Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina are basically solid red. And there is not a single county in Montana that's red. All right? Hmm. Nobody is more dispersed than Montana. So it can't just be like, oh, no, you have to drive more than two hours to get to the grocery store in these places. You have to drive more than two miles to get to the grocery store in Montana, I promise you. But you've got Colorado, Utah, uh, Wyoming basically everywhere but the south is complying with these directives sure but if you look at the places in the south that are green it's places like atlanta columbia richmond raleigh like it's it's the it's not just the south it's the it it is the country uh parts of the south the rural south yeah it's the rural south and sure Part of it might be that that's also the the parts of the South that tend to vote red. Yeah. Uh, even cities in the South are bluer than um, 
they're redder than cities in the north, but they're still very, very blue because they're cities. Yeah. I mean, I just I just ignore the cities because people in cities don't drive more than two miles ever. So I don't think the data from there is that useful. Well, I don't know. I, I think in a month's time we'll see how badly this has impacted them and whether they were uh, very stupid or had the right risk assessment. Yeah. I will note that there are a couple of... Um of uh, good uh, quote-unquote democratic socialist countries in Europe that are using a very light touch with uh, with lockdowns, uh, notably Sweden and the Netherlands. So I'm not comfortable chalking this entirely up to Trumpian backwardness, but I'm also kind of worried that those places are kind of acting like the control group in a treatment for a fatal disease and it's not gonna end well for them so i guess we'll find out i guess so all right so the other the other article that i wanted to share this week was that it appears spain is attempting to plan a permanent universal basic income which i'm very happy to see i would love if this actually takes off um a lot of countries are doing what the united states is doing and just issuing checks uh for a temporary amount of time but spain and spanish officials have gone on record saying that they're hoping to make this permanent so i would love to see that happen we could finally get a western country to try out universal basic income and see what actually happens that would be fantastic um am i remembering correctly or did i read a different article uh i heard that the u part of ubi was kind of a lie that they were restricting who would get it i think that's right i think they are means testing it which just ruins everything that that just makes it another you know welfare program not that those are bad but that means it's not ubi i will note that uh spain has managed to fuck up its labor laws so badly that they had a 20 I think 20 to 25 percent youth unemployment rate before coronavirus so I mean if you're gonna fuck up your economy that badly anyway might as well throw a UBI in there so you're not literally killing people but I'd also recommend you just have labor laws that aren't horrific I don't like I don't like Spanish government. It's, it's so bad. I'm getting that impression. It's so bad. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at this article, and it says, here's, here's what they say. They say the basic income is mostly aimed at families, but differentiating between their circumstances. So that sounds like a plan to means test, uh, which is unfortunate. It, yeah, it is. Ideally, that just means that they're formatting as a ne- it as a negative income tax, which I think... If a UBI you will have, that's the best way to do it, for reasons I went into in the Bayesian Conspiracy episode I was a guest on, hashtag shameless plug. We'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, but if it's more serious means testing than that, then that's probably just gonna be end up as another dumb, wasteful social program that spends a lot more money than it actually gives to people, which is bad. Oh, I will note that a means-tested basic income, uh, I was reading a few months ago, is the de facto situation in Germany now. 
because they've removed all requ- – the German Supreme Court ruled that the German government could not withhold unemployment benefits from anyone for any reason who was unemployed. Um, they had huh. – Did they have a time they had limit? They work requirements. You had to be looking for a job, and the – the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. I don't know what the reasoning was or if it, you know, if there was some other law that it interfered with or some constitutional provision or something. But, you know, a, a bunch of people looked at it and said, okay, so basically you just, you just have unconditional payments to anyone who's unemployed forever. Is it forever? Because the U.S. also has the looking for work requirement, but they also have a time limit of, oh, I don't remember how many months it was when I, I was, it was on six it. Months. Like. Okay, is is Germany literally like if you're unemployed as long as you're looking for work previously, you would get it forever? They didn't that's have a time my impression. Wow. Well, that's going to be an interesting time yeah. in Germany. So speaking of um, massive unemployment rates, I have been interested to see uh, our economy shutting down because for the most part, it doesn't appear that anyone's ability to live – uh, as long as they have enough money to do so, has been impacted. Like, the ability to get housing isn't any worse than it was before. The ability to get food and utilities and all the basic necessities and clothing is hasn't gone down at all. Like, it, it seems to me that our economy could function at a much lower rate, and a lot of what we spend money on is luxuries that you know, we like and we enjoy, and as long as we have the money, we want to spend it on them, but holy shit is a huge fraction of the U.S. populace not essential for living. I mean, I strongly object to the distinction between luxuries and um, and necessities, because, like, sure, you could call food a necessity, but is is, like... The, like, at what point does food stop being a necessity? Like, are we going to call foie gras a necessity? Probably not. But are we going to call literally anything that's not Soylent a necessity? Uh, that seems kind of arbitrary. So, I, I am in general not a huge fan of the distinction. I much prefer to phrase things just except the reality that everything is to some extent a luxury and phrase things in terms of wants rather than needs. Uh, Wes, why am I wrong? I don't think you are wrong. I actually agree with that. Oh. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I think that, that the line between a want and a need, as you say, is kind of a gray area and is more of a continuum than a bright line. Um, but I think on, on Eniash's point that, sure, we can we can live without a lot of the economy. I think it's been pretty clear for a while that most of our economy has transitioned out of manufacturing and into services. Uh, a lot of personal services like uh, dining out, you know, people getting their uh, uh, nails and hair done, um, just a lot of people doing jobs for people that, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, everyone did themselves. Uh, that's not to say that this is a good thing, that 
people are doing these for themselves anymore. I'm in favor of specialization. Um, I'd much rather pay someone to clean my house than do it myself. But, you know, I take your point that, yes, we could get by with a lot fewer people working. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that necessarily implies that we should. I don't know if it implies that we should, but I think it implies that UBI is not as unrealistic as previously thought because a lot of these jobs aren't possibly aren't that necessary anyway. Yeah, but so this is actually something I wanted to talk about uh, with regards to the stimulus bill, which um, I probably should have talked about uh, last week, but I waffled on enough about dumb stuff. Uh, so one of the reasons why I'm not super bullish on the stimulus bill is because the coronavirus isn't actually causing an aggregate demand recession. So like if you think about the housing crisis, people didn't stop buying houses because there weren't enough houses to buy. They stopped buying houses because they didn't want to buy more houses and that caused the crash. The coronavirus uh, is not causing a demand recession, it's causing a supply recession. Uh, basically, instead of people not wanting to buy stuff, people still want to buy stuff. At least at first they were able to buy stuff, but there wasn't as much stuff to buy. At first it was just Chinese exports, then it was a lot of Asian uh, or imports, then it was a lot of Asian imports, and now it, it's starting to be American homegrown goods as well, uh, which is obviously affecting demand as well as supply because it's affecting people's incomes. But um, put it this way, having a serious restriction in your supply isn't a good thing. Uh, it's survivable in the sense that it won't literally kill you to have a restricted aggregate supply but it will it won't kill you to have a restricted aggregate demand either and people still talk about recessions like they're bad things and rightly so so saying oh this means that uh there won't be any problems with a ubi because look when we had a coronavirus all this there was all this uh supply shut down and we survived that well yeah we we're gonna survive it probably but it's not fun and if you're at the point where you're okay giving up fun in exchange for a ubi then you've kind of gone into a happy death spiral about uh, UBI and taken your eye off the ball. Like, the point is that we're trying to maximize the amount of fun in the universe. And I, I, like, maybe this is just the coronavirus confirming everyone's preconceived beliefs, but this actually makes me feel a lot worse about UBI, because, like... I, I'm getting first-hand experience of what it's like to have a much more limited supply of stuff, and it's not great. Yeah, well, one of the reasons that I am hoping Spain does um, model this as a negative income tax, which basically approximates a UBI, is so we can see if there is any effect on labor supply. 
uh, because there's some evidence to suggest that uh, you know when there's no good evidence on what happens when you give people a UBI, but there's there's a lot of reason to believe it might not have a very large effect on the labor force. Uh, UBI is there to keep people basically at or below poverty level. Uh, most people are still going to want to work jobs. Uh, so for the sake of registering my predictions in advance, I want to refer back to my previous comments about Spain's labor policies. They have basically already deep-sixed their labor market, and uh, even if UBI doesn't seem to seriously affect their unemployment rate or their job-seeking rate, uh, that won't have much external validity to a country that hasn't fucked up its economy. Now, my preferred my That's preferred fair. policy is you pair UBI with a minimum wage repeal, uh, because you don't need a minimum wage if everyone has enough money to live. Uh, can we pair it with a minimum wage repeal, a uh, payroll tax repeal, a uh, health insurance requirement repeal, etc., etc.? <laughs> well, those things are also implicit taxes on labor, though. And if you just allow people to work for $1 an hour, you're still not getting the effective cost minimum price of labor down to $1 an hour unless you also get rid of all that other stuff. True, but my prediction is that getting rid of the minimum wage would offset uh, probably by more any effect that UBI had on reducing the labor force, even without David's entire wish list. I, I do think that, like, the closest we can get to my ideal fully automated luxury gay anarcho-capitalism <laughs> is uh, a UBI and an extremely extensive gig economy, but given that California is seemingly determined to strangle the, the gig economy in its crib, I'm not sure that'll actually happen, so... Get me my mostly unregulated gig economy, and I'll be willing to talk about a UBI. Well, I hear California's seceding anyway. You know, you can move to Colorado. We were pretty uh, pretty hands-off with most of our laws and regulations here. As long as they don't have to do with guns. Col sure. Colorado's pretty bad about gun laws. All right, Anyash, you had some stories you wanted to share. Hey, you know what's really cool about the stimulus package? That it is helping small businesses. But you know what's not at all cool about that? Freaking churches count as small businesses, even though they are completely tax-exempt and have very few laws that apply to small businesses applying to them. Uh, under this new uh, regulatory directive, they are allowed, uh, the government is allowed to treat churches as small businesses and pay pastors salaries during this coronavirus uh, outbreak, which, you know, I think... If you're a stupid freaking church and you can't even get your parishioners to help keep you afloat during a biblical plague, maybe you don't have much business being a, being a church still. I, I'm also extremely upset about the fact that we're supposed to have a separation of church and state, and that is one of the reasons that churches do not get taxed. And yet here we go giving them money and deciding which churches uh, are, you know, good enough to, to get funded. So I do agree with you that uh, churches being tax-exempt tax is kind of bullshit, but steel-manning the we-should-give-churches-money position, uh, over Easter, there was 
there were quite a few people who um, uh, did things like attending drive-in Easter homilies at their churches, uh, and on at least one occasion, they were the people who went to these churches, parked their cars around the churches, stayed in their cars with the windows rolled up, and tuned their radios to the uh, channel that the sermon was airing on, were fined $500 a person for violating social distancing statutes. And that's kind of bullshit. And I have enough sentimental fondness for freedom of religion that it's very much not something I'm okay with. And, like, the only silver lining I can think of is thank fuck it wasn't a black church. Otherwise, that would have turned into a bloodbath. I completely agree that that is complete bullshit. And someone needs to do something about that uh, that sheriff's department or whatever the hell it was. But that has very little, if anything, to do with the fact that the government is paying pastors' salaries. Yeah, I have no strong feelings about this just because I... My understanding is the point of the bailout bill is to sort of maintain the status quo as much as possible. I guess that includes churches. Uh, I think ideally it wouldn't have, mostly just because I don't like them. Uh, but <laughs> I'm not. It's not something I'm getting uh, real moved about. Uh, I will also say that, like. From a pure, amoral, uh, pragmatic politics standpoint, um, that is a good way to get the red team on board with a law that had a lot of blue team wish listing on it. And if that's what they gotta do, then I guess that's what they gotta do. Uh, not saying I like it, just saying it makes tactical sense. And I do give some points for good politicking, even if uh, it leads to outcomes I don't like. Because reality doesn't care that much about what I like, and I do like to be able to make predictions about stuff. So I need to care about reality's opinion. Alright, fair enough. Anyash, you had one other article you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so this is like kind of a trifecta of articles, but there was an Amazon Air, uh, Amazon warehouse worker uh, who walked out in protest against not getting enough uh, personal protective equipment in the warehouse, and uh, he had like uh, 15 other people walk out with him, I believe. There's been a few of these, but uh, he got fired. Uh, interestingly, he was the only one of the 15 that got fired. There may have been other circumstances there. There's a lot of... Uh, the both sides are blaming each other and making excuses and stuff for why he should or should not have been fired. But uh, all that aside, he was fired uh, after walking out to protest not enough PPE. The, the captain of an aircraft carrier here, uh, which most people have heard of, was dismissed uh, from his post recently for complaining to his superiors in an email that got leaked that uh, his servicemen were not being protect, uh, decently protected. They were not being uh, allowed to stay away from each other. And that, uh, I think the quote was, uh, seamen don't have to die because of this. It was something along those lines. But he was, he, he knew that doing this would basically be an end to his career. So he threw himself in front of the firing line to protect his troops, which I think is really awesome of him. 
but also really unfortunate that uh, we are at this point where if you say to people in power, hey, I don't want my troops to die for no good reason, can we have a lot of them move off the aircraft carrier and get more equipment here, you will get fired for trying to save their lives. And also hospitals are f threatening to fire and in some cases actually firing doctors and nurses that publicly say they don't have enough uh, protective equipment to the point where there's charities that are trying to pass out protective equipment to doctors and nurses and are having a hard time doing it because they can't figure out which hospitals need it since everyone is too scared to say we don't have it here. And I want to know what the fuck is going on in our society? Why is everyone at this point, it seems like, being punished for wanting to be protected and safe and pointing out when, you know, hey, these beams in this coal mine are really unsturdy and we're all going to die soon. Maybe you should look into that. This is incredibly fucked up. It, it, is it not? Am I seeing things wrong? No, I think it's incredibly fucked up, but unfortunately is par for the course in American employment. You know, we don't have labor laws in this country, really, that protect anybody. So people are getting fired all the time for stupid, arbitrary reasons like that. In general, I'm, you know, in favor of loose, uh, loose labor laws so that you can hire or fire whoever you need. But, like, it, it's, it's hard in this situation because I would say, like, if, if a doctor or a nurse was fired for complaining from a hospital the correct thing to do would be for every doctor and nurse to quit that hospital en masse in protest. But I don't think they're going to because, first of all, they care about the people in their community and they want to save them. But also in, in their cases, and like the Amazon workers' cases, they're probably all really scared right now that they won't be able to get any other job uh, with the, the unemployment rate the way it is. So they're willing to just shut up and risk their lives. And I think, I don't know. I think that's kind of fucked up. Uh, so I will say that the um, Scott Alexander posted about the Navy captain in his um, latest links post. Uh, his comment is, I'm having a hard time thinking of any perspective other than the Navy is bad and should be torn down totally to the foundations, preferably using some sort of land-based weapon so they can't fight back. Uh, but he also does link to a Twitter thread from a different ex-captain trying his best to give a nuanced perspective. Uh, I am generally in favor of nuanced perspectives. I have not read that thread, but I would recommend people do so before uh, completely blowing up. Uh, I'm not super familiar with the cases of the hospital workers and the Amazon warehouse workers, uh, my general feeling about, like, on-the-job health and safety is that you should throw more money at those workers until they stop complaining. Uh, I don't know why that's not happening. Uh, I am tempted to go full uh, anarcho-capitalist and say it's probably because of some kind of dumb law somewhere along the way, but... I also recognize that that's probably uh, says more about my own political inclinations than anything about reality, so I don't know. I mean, we've been complaining a lot about how China is suppressing dissent and lying about the actual cases of corona, 
but the Chinese government is pointing at these things and saying, look, the U.S. is just as bad as us when it comes to suppressing where they're falling short, and I'm having a hard time disagreeing with them right now. I think that's a little dramatic. This is this you is three individual decisions, not the hammer and full coercive power of the U.S. government coming down and trying to silence these people. I mean, you just the fact that you've heard all of these stories shows that nobody's really being silenced. I'm very, very tempted to waffle on about uh, the U.S. government qua government versus the U.S. government qua employer of government employees, because it's actually a pretty interesting area of the law. Uh, but I've waffled on about everything for far too long, so I'll just say if you're interested, um, Ken White has done an episode of Make No Law about the topic, and I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested in the relevant constitutional law about when the government can fire people versus when government employees are protected by the First Amendment. I do think that there's a... There's a difference between what China is doing, where people are silenced because if they don't stay silenced, they will be killed. But on the other hand, uh, when a aircraft carrier captain loses his job, and this Amazon worker is fired, and these doctors are fired, that definitely uh, silences people because of all the people who see that and shut the hell up because they don't want to lose their command or their yeah, positions. Without a doubt, that creates a chilling effect. I just don't think you should be drawing a false equivalence between this and what China's doing. I don't I don't know how false it is. I guess the the killings and executions are definitely uh of a much higher magnitude of a threat, but I don't think the the simply allowing people to to be thrown in the gears of the machinery and everyone else better not, you know, better watch their mouths or the same thing will happen to them is is well, not the difference I see. In China, it's not just the people, it's not just the whistleblowers who are being punished. It's anyone repeating what the whistleblowers are saying. In the United States, that's not the case. The whistleblowers, sure, they're getting fired, their careers are ruined, maybe even worse things are happening to them, I don't know. But you and I, when we repeat what they've told us, when we go on a podcast and talk about it, we're not worried about the government coming for we're not worried anything is going to happen. That's a good point. That, over that, uh, which is, if we were in China, you know, I would, I would, you know, it would be my civic duty to tell you to be quiet and that you're a traitor and to call the government right now. Okay, point, point well taken. All right, so now we're going to move into our new segment, Happy News. Huzzah! And Aniash, I think uh, you submitted some articles for this. I did. Uh, the first two are mine. Uh, the first one being that uh, this is a episode of um, Planet Money, which is NPR's econ podcast. It's really short. Episodes are usually about 15 minutes. They're always wonderful. Um, this is episode 987 because it has been around for a while. The race to make ventilators. But it documents how industries in America are pivoting to uh, create more ventilators. And one of them, uh, the, their lead story in this, was this uh, small manufacturer of aluminum parts. They would cast pistons for uh, these miniature engines. I don't remember exactly what they were for. 
but uh, their their business was kind of drying up because of the whole corona thing. And when the government said, hey, everyone start making these things, we may commandeer your resources, uh, GE, with their supply chain management, the like the weight of GE and all those, I don't even know how many hundreds of years of institutional knowledge that's accumulated in the company, went out, m reached all their contacts, anyone who could make, uh, make items like this, pistons, whatever, and they reached this company and like, hey, can you retool and start making these uh, this part for us? And they said, yeah, sure. And they moved quickly. It took them, I think, a week or two to get the m new machinery in place because uh, everyone else that they worked with was also um, the like the people that actually made the machinery for them in their uh, factory were also quickly moving to this uh getting all of society in gear to make more of these ventilators and within a couple of weeks they were pumping out parts already and i was just really impressed by how quickly we as a society managed to switch over to make something that we desperately need right away and i will second that podcast recommendation and planet money in general which as any ash says has over 900 episodes so you will never run out <laughs> um, and just to add something to that story which i think will warm david's heart i don't believe the government had any role in that I think there was, like, an implicit threat, but aside from that, yeah. Uh, I will just add that um, my understanding is that Elon Musk is talking about doing the same with Tesla. Elon Musk talks about doing things with Tesla a lot. <laughs> he does, but this one sounds fairly plausible. He might he might just he might just launch the ventilators into the sun, which would frankly be cool enough to almost be worth it. But Elon Musk's last uh, promise was to provide a bunch of ventilators, and then didn't he provide some completely different machine? And and everyone was like, so, these aren't so there. What are you doing, Elon? So so he he provided a type of ventilator, which is not the type of ventilator people need to treat COVID. And then a bunch of hospitals tweeted, thank you to Elon Musk for providing us the right type of ventilator. Mm -hmm. So my, what I'm guessing happened was he just got a bunch of ventilators and some of them were the right kind and some of them were the wrong kind. And uh, Elon Musk fanboys are only matched on the internet by Elon Musk haters. Mm. So the haters waved around a bunch of pictures of the wrong types of ventilators and said, see, we told you he was Satan, and it, and it was actually not true. He didn't do literally the best he could have, but he still did pretty dang good. So, yeah. Um, consider, that, consider that a uh, developing story. Uh, there's not a super strong epistemic status on that. But that's what I'm guessing probably happened. Is Elon Musk Satan developing story? <laughs> we don't have a link for this because it just occurred to me that we should have had a link for it. But uh, you guys both saw Bill Gates creating seven new factories, right? Yes. Bill Gates using his own so personal money. So please, everyone, tell me about how we don't need billionaires. Yeah, this is something... And how we should tax billionaires out of existence. He's making seven factories. At most, two of them might end up being used. The rest is just dead weight loss. And uh, this is basically what the government should be doing and what a functional government would be doing, but they aren't. We need uh, Bill Gates to do it instead. Yeah, and the details of this are really interesting because what he's doing is, is each factory is making a different vaccine. And he, he's just waiting to see which one 
works. Yeah. And so as soon as we find out, he's going to be able to spring into action and start making him unmasked. I mean, I think this is the one of the best arguments for billionaire philanthropy ever, and I really uh, hope that people will never speak out against it again. But if they do, we have this to hit them over the head with. Robert Wimbledon, uh, the head of research for 80,000 Hours, uh, who we will be hearing from in a moment, had the best take on this on Twitter. Uh, he said, um, uh, if only we had taxed Bill Gates' wealth away, then instead of having seven vac- vaccine factories ready to go whenever we could figure out which vaccine is most effective, we could have, checks notes, enforced a ban on coronavirus testing for an extra week. Hmm. Fire. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, Robert Wiblin is definitely follow it worth following on your social media outlet of choice. All right. Well, on that note, David, why don't you take us to your 80,000 hours article? Yes. So uh, Robert Wiblin, the head of research for 80,000 hours, uh, posted an article on April 3rd. Uh, good news about COVID-19. It is a listicle, so I'll just read the bullet points, though the entire thing is worth uh, reading. Uh, Some countries are turning away COVID-19 at the door, while others are turning the tide of the pandemic. Uh, Basically, some countries seem to be successfully keeping uh, keeping, uh, COVID out, while others, uh, most notably South Korea and as of now, uh, possibly the U.S., are starting to peak in terms of both new cases and uh, new death rates. Um, also including Spain, France, and Italy as uh, possible uh, countries that are peaking. Uh, It might kill fewer people than we thought. Um, The uh, latest uh, case fatality rate estimates are getting um, knocked down from around half a percent to uh, a tenth of a percent to a quarter of a percent. Um, testing is rapidly increasing in most countries. Uh, this is something that Scott Alexander also brought up in, uh, his latest links post alongside the Churchill quote that American, you can always depend on Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other options. Uh, as much as we don't have enough tests yet, we are rapidly uh, expanding our production and will hopefully get to the point we need to be sooner rather than later. Uh, supermarkets are refilling and hiring fast. Um, despite all the doomsaying, capitalism is still working quite well. Uh, as I mentioned, I went grocery shopping this morning and there were not any frozen burgers still but that's just because I'm really picky in the brand I like, and if I was less picky, I would have been able to get frozen burgers, and uh, there's also no Jambala seasoning, as far as I could tell. Other than that, everything I needed to buy was in my local Wegmans and or Walmart, uh, including toilet paper, though that's only because they uh, enacted a quantity restriction, which is unfortunate, but definitely better than the alternative. Uh, We're learning what we need to know to respond intelligently. 
as much as I ranted about how we're doing testing wrong, there are countries, most notably Iceland and Austria, that are doing testing right, and we are getting actual good epidemiological data from those countries. As always, with cross-country comparisons, I'm worried about external validity, but it's definitely better than we were at a fortnight ago. And we're making te rapid technological progress on an every front. Uh, there are new tests and new uh, vaccine candidates and new treatments coming out pretty much constantly. And that's how we're going to beat this thing in the long run. So, yay. Huzzah. All right. Good news. And, Aniash, you had one other article you wanted to share about CRISPR. Yeah, this has nothing to do with COVID, and I thought that was a nice change as well. Uh, there is right now a CRISPR uh, being used to possibly restore someone's eyesight. It's a genetic problem. All the cells, it's with a retina, all the cells are there. They just aren't working correctly due to a genetic defect. So these researchers have injected CRISPR directly into this guy's eyeball, and uh, hopefully it will rewrite his genes to start producing the correct protein and give him sight back. I uh, don't know if it works yet because they just started, but um, this is hopefully another, you know, another great thing for humanity, getting us better and helping us rewrite our genetic code in a way that makes life more tolerable for everyone. And getting us closer to the glorious transhumanist future. That's what I'm shooting for. Quick, quick preview of the next episode. We have tentatively planned to talk about life after COVID. Uh, tweet, uh, tweet storm which came up I think either today or yesterday um, and I will say that one of the things I think will come out of this is we will be less skeeved out by biotech innovation and so things like CRISPR are probably going to take off once we have resources to dedicate to biomed problems that aren't COVID related. Oh. That'd be awesome. Would be nice. Here's hoping. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So we're going to move on to troop deployment. As we all know, politics are the mind killer and arguments are soldiers. So in that vein, each host is going to deploy a soldier onto the battlefield. And we will start with David. Uh, so first off, I do want to give a quick update on last week or last fortnight's troop deployment. I have finished my Tusca model, and it is glorious. Um, unfortunately, this is a auditory medium, and I can't demonstrate the gloriousness. Uh, but uh, I also have a new troop to deploy. I am something of a collector of what I like to think of as incidental transhumanist media, uh, which is media that was not originally intended to be transhumanist, but ended up that way. Uh, currently, the prize of my collection is the final stanza of Amazing Grace, which goes, when we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Uh, I could take or leave the sing God's praise part, but the rest of that sounds like a pretty radical description of the glorious transhumanist future. Uh, my 
uh, troop deployment for this Fortnite, though, is the latest entry into that collection. The uh, poem Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas, uh, who was a Welsh poet uh, living in the first half of the 20th century. Um, the poem, which I will read now, goes, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end in no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on your sad height, Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I Thank normally, you, yeah, that was awesome. I normally don't understand poetry uh, and don't like it for that reason, but I love this poem. And yeah, thank you for reading it. All right, going on to Eniash. Uh, so my troop deployment is the fact that a common refrain among the more right-wing and even, dare I say, libertarian folks is that the beast should be starved, by which they mean that the government is a mess and isn't good at anything, so one of the uh, ideal tactics is to uh, strangle the funding. Uh, don't fund new programs, reduce taxes, that kind of thing, just so that uh, the government starves and can't do these things anymore, and which will allow people to you know, get, take some freedom back into their lives. And that seemed like, like a decent strategy to me uh, before, especially for like military stuff. I was like, if we could just not fund it, it would wither away, right? But uh, with this whole COVID-19 that's been happening, I have a few friends that live in Europe, and, and we also have some in the Discord server now, that are actually really happy with how their governments have handled things and uh, trust their government's agency still. We have a guy who works for a regulatory agency in Canada, and even though he obviously has a vested interest uh, with it being his job, overall he seems pretty bullish on Canadian uh, government functionality. And I kind of got to thinking, you know, maybe this whole make the government completely dysfunctional so people lose, lose faith in it doesn't work that well because maybe in a hundred years or something we'll get some less government when people revolt but in the meantime we've got this terrible dysfunctional government that doesn't do anything and maybe it could do some things like they do in europe and i just i'm not sure this starving of beast is a great strategy after all we seem to have a giant bloated carcass that isn't going anywhere instead of you know a giant bloated thing that actually does some stuff sometimes all right well i'm sure david has lots of thoughts about that but they will have do, to wait until the next episode. I have waffled enough. Uh, sorry, sorry, breaking news. Uh, four minutes ago from Eliezer Yudkowsky's Facebook. So I'm not saying I did such a thing, but if, just hypothetically, I had a script about FedChan helping economy Kyun, 
fight Corona-chan. How would I go about paying to get that made into a high-quality manga one-shot? Continue. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners need to know. If maybe they can help. (laughs) All right. My soldier this week is Liquid Democracy. This is something I've only recently heard about. It is an alternative uh, democracy system, which I think sounds great. What it is is each citizen has one vote which they can use to exercise themselves to vote on legislation you know they can cast their vote just like anyone in the house of representatives would or they can assign their vote to someone that they trust as a proxy and basically what happens the idea is that you know some people would choose to just exercise their own votes all the time there would be people with a lot of votes Uh, there would be people with a few votes and everyone would get represented that way. And the important part and why it's liquid is that you can switch your vote at any time. So we wouldn't have these inflection points where, you know, everybody votes on this day and then they're stuck with that choice for years. Um, you could if, – if somebody did – if your representative did something you didn't like, you could withdraw your vote any time. You could take it back to yourself and exercise it yourself or you can give it to somebody else you trust more. And I think that would be – a much better system than the one we've got. If we're going to do democracy, then I think that's probably the best way to do it. All right, and that's our show for this week. Please, you can follow us. The link is in the show notes if you're hearing this on the Beijing Conspiracy feed. Um, we have I have submitted the podcast to Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, and I think we are up on Spotify. So if you want to leave us a five-star review that would be awesome if you hated our show don't leave us a review because you know who wants those i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure any review at all is helpful actually oh well if you hated our show leave us a review then yeah i know that at least for amazon uh they start uh, promoting works more when they have x number of reviews and the x changes but it doesn't matter if it's a high review or a low review just any amount of reviews once they reach a certain threshold it starts getting more uh more promotion from amazon all right, then. Go tell Amazon how much you hated us. <laughs> well, I'm just saying maybe other places are the same. And all right, and we will be back in two weeks. Same rat time, same rat channel. See you guys later. Bye.